Today's episode is sponsored by Alone in the Dark. The highly anticipated new reimagination by Pieces Interactive and THQ Nordic. Play as Edward Carnby or Emily Hartwood to explore your environments, fight monsters, solve puzzles, and uncover the true secret of Dorsetto Manor. Our favorite heroes are brought to life by Hollywood stars Jodie Comer of Killing Eve and David Harbour of Stranger Things, who lend not only their voices, but their appearance and their formidable acting skills to the brave protagonists. Experience a deep psychological story that goes beyond the realms of the imaginable, all dreamed up by Mikhail Hedberg, cult horror writer of Soma and Amnesia. The team at Pieces Interactive is supported by monster designer and legendary Guillermo del Toro collaborator Guy Davis, as well as doom jazz legend Jason Conan, who provides his eerie and haunting melodies for the right atmosphere. Alone in the Dark is available March 20th on PS5, Xbox Series XS, and PC. Pre-order your copy now and escape into the dark. Welcome to Nightlight, a horror movie podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Prince, also known as Head Knight, and alongside me, we got David. Your favorite horror virgin. There he is, in the flesh. But right now on the internet, but that's okay. <laughs> also known as Nightly. Other in there, we got Freddy. Always keeping it spoopy. Always and forever. Also known as Nighty Night. We are a group of knights with an absolute love for film and a passion for horror. This is a podcast that takes a different horror film to break down, discuss the ultimate question, why horror? So hit the lights, sit back, and let the darkness envelope you. You can further support the show over on patreon.com forward slash goodnightlife. And that's like what they would. My pleasure on Patreon. You have access to the show ad-free and as early as Monday with the post-show. If you don't have any books to toss, don't worry. An episode is released every Friday on most podcast services around the world. Did you know our fans actually do the K with us while they're listening? I, know. I thought that was the coolest fucking shit in the world. I saw that on Twitter <laughs> and it just like made me smile like literally all day. I love that. Like that was uh, that definitely gave me the, the feels for sure. I'm I'm definitely into it. But we are ending off our Pride Horror Month with an absolute banger. But before we get to that banger, we want to thank our patrons so very much for supporting us and just keeping us fed, keeping us inside of a studio, keeping the lights on, keeping the neon light on, all the jazz. But we want to thank uh, Willow, Taylor, Jessica, Erica, uh, Sandy, Jared, Jasmine, Chantel, Rio, Mark, Jesse, Joe, Kaylee, Rob, Eric, Day, Freddie. Thank you, Freddie. I appreciate you. Anytime. <laughs> my grandma, Yvonne, and my mom, Lola, for supporting our dreams. Thank y'all so very much. Seriously, it's absolute insane on the amount of support that you guys give this show. It's absolutely incredible. Thank you so much. If you, too, would like to also get your name shouted out and support us, you can do so over on patreon.com forward slash goodnightlife. But we are kicking things off. Not alone again, everybody. I told you we're going to have a guest on each ev- each episode for this month. And we kept that promise because tonight we have BJ Colangelo. Hello. Yeah. yeah. Hi, BJ. How are you? 
I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Oh shit! No, thank you so much for fucking coming. Thank you, like seriously. <laughs> like this, honestly, we've been trying to get you on the show for a little bit now, and we were trying to figure out stuff and make it all happen. So, no, thank you so much. You're very, very welcome. Any opportunity I get to talk about how the origins of horror are hella gay? That is, <laughs> that is what I'm here for. This is what I was put on the earth to do. This is what I love. <laughs> this is what I love. I love to hear it. Well. Tonight, everybody, we are discussing The Bride of Frankenstein. First and foremost, thoughts. And let's start with our guest, actually. PJ, go ahead and go first. Sure. I have a very sordid relationship with The Bride of Frankenstein because I love the film. I love James Whale. I love everything about this movie. I hate how fandom has romanticized this film when we have a plethora of universal women who have their own movies and show up for more than, you know, five minutes at the end. Right. And yet, if I want universal lady merch, I have The Bride of Frankenstein and that's my only option. And that's lame to me. But I love this movie. I think that it's really monumental. I love how aggressively gay it is and how <laughs> it goes over the heads of most people. I think it's brilliant. Oh, I couldn't have said it better myself. David, <laughs> my friend. I, David and Freddie, both of you, this is your first watch for this, correct? Yep. Yep. Oh, wow. Amazing. So I would love to know what the both of you two think of this. I always have a blast when it comes to watching classic films, more so of like uh, viewing the film techniques that were used back then. That stuff sure. always fascinates me. And I love um, just wondering like how people perceive the film um, back then. Right. But like BJ said, I'm the type of person where I would have uh, never known this was a queer film. So I'm so excited to hear about the analysis that we'll go into um, because I want to hear all about that. So I'm super excited. I'm really, really stoked to jump into that as well. Freddie, what about you, my friend? Yeah, uh, I found this movie very interesting. It was, yeah, 100% my first time watching it. I went completely blind. I didn't know the story too much. And kind of what BJ was saying, too. I was kind of waiting for the Bride of Frankenstein, at least in the beginning of the movie, but we didn't get to see her until the very end. I was like, oh, that is a very interesting choice <laughs> to have that story being told that way. But okay. Uh, but yeah. overall, I thought the way the movie was made holds up rather well and I, I love the techniques that they use in here and I'm surprised the stuff that they were able to get accomplished even though the movie came out in like 1935 I think mm -hmm. and yeah I was kind of amazed by some of the stuff that I saw on the screen I was like I don't know how they did it without like special effects but they got it done so I was pretty blown away by that yeah I can I can definitely agree with that um I love this fucking movie <laughs> I love this fucking movie. I first watched this in college, and um, I found out that it was a queer horror film in college. And I was like, oh, interesting. And just what BJ said, like, it completely went over my head. I was like, holy fuck. <laughs> like, I didn't catch that shit at all. And when I started, like, rewatching it and things like that, I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Like, especially the, the first opening of this movie, it's totally just like, huh. I can picture them totally having a threesome right now. <laughs> like, I can definitely feel that. I'm getting flirtatious vibes from everybody in this room. But uh, it's it's definitely a really, really just interesting story in general. And I completely agree with you as well, BJ, on like our villain slash monstrous, beautiful queen at the end is just at the end. It's just mm -hmm. like, oh, 
I would have loved for you to just be throughout this film just uh, like I don't know. I don't even know what I would truly have wanted, but I wanted more. And I think that's what I love the most about this movie. And I was thinking about like how we're bringing back all these universal monsters. I personally don't think we need another Frankenstein right now, but I definitely think we need another Bride of Frankenstein because I feel like what Penny Dreadful probably mm -hmm. did one of the best characteristics of our Bride of Frankenstein, how strong and fucking genius she was and she was like nope this is my body i'm doing what i want dorian gray mm -hmm. what's up boo come get me <laughs> <laughs> but it's like i love that stuff and i i feel like this had the potential to do that for sure but i don't know interesting super interesting yeah, and I'm ready. I'm ready to just dive on into this, and so we can start this analysis <laughs> if y'all are. <laughs> can I can I say one thing to Please. sort of set the stage for it? Please so do. this movie, like like you said, you know, if you if you're not looking for it, some of the queer stuff can go right above your head, and it's really important to note that James Whale, who directed this was one of the first openly gay directors so open. mm -hmm. when, you know, it's the 30s. That's a death sentence for most people. And what's interesting is that historians have debated for many, many years on whether or not the queerness in this film was intentional or whether, you know, the, it was something he was doing subconsciously. And his friends uh, and one of his close friends is his biographer has really insisted, like, he was an artist. He wasn't a gay artist, just an artist. And <laughs> it just makes me laugh because it's always straight people who say that about the creators. And right. you know, he didn't get the chance to speak for himself because this is all happening after he's died. But what I wish people would understand more is that everything that James Whale understands about love relationships, safety, how he's going to interact with a community, uh, familial relationships, because, you know, anything to do with Frankenstein is a familial relationship, um, right. you know, public opinion, um, feeling othered, all of those things and his perspectives and his gaze on that is going to be queer, whether he wants it to be or not, because mm -hmm. we bring that to the table and like, that's our perspective. So it's one of those things where a lot of people, when they hear like Bride of Frankenstein's a queer movie, they always like to go, no, it wasn't because it wasn't ever said explicitly that it's gay. It's, it's gay, whether we wanted it to be or not, whether it's right. subtextual or not, because he's bringing that lived experience to his interpretation of this material. That makes so much sense. Cause I know him and David Lewis, they were like, what a couple for like 22 years or something like that. Yeah. Like, so and they were very publicized about that. And you see, I feel like you see a lot of the relationship with like Pretorius and Henry Frankenstein quite a bit of how like they even kind of come off of each other where like Pretorius is like not giving up when like Frankenstein is just like, oh yeah, you know, like, I, I don't know, forbidden fruit, but I kind of <laughs> want to touch it. Like, I, like, so it's, it's super fascinating. And I feel like that, that kind of um, sexual gaze is very much explored um, when we see them together quite often. So yeah, I and know. I'm just really thankful that this is a title that you wanted to cover for it because so many people desperately try to erase the queerness of this movie because they Not don't me. want to they don't <laughs> want to admit they like something that's gay because people are insecure and need to check mm. themselves. Yep. But uh, I mean, that's just I think. Something that should always be kept in the back of the mind when going, you know, scene by scene with this movie is yeah. it's there whether or not you can see it. Definitely. Oh, 
Beautiful. Well, let's jump up into this, y'all. Bride of Frankenstein, directed by James Whale, released April 22nd of 1935. Runtime of one hour and 15 minutes. What a whopping runtime that is. A budget of $397,000 with a box office, get fucking this, of $2 million. Damn. Holy That's huge. Shit. I checked inflation, everybody. It was like $90 million, and I was like, oh, my God, that's so much money. (laughs) Rating of 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. And the nostalgia just hits us right off the bat because we open to a violent storm as the camera flows closer towards a mansion inside the warm castle. Lord Byron, Percy Shelley, and Mary Shelley enjoying their evening. And Lord Byron is just like, yo, what's up? Mary, what's up? Like, Percy. And I love the fact that we get Percy and Byron first in this <laughs> whole situation. Like, you don't even know Mary's sitting there until Percy mentions her. <laughs> He's like, what about Mary? <laughs> so it's pretty great. Uh, Lord uh, Byron compliments the storm raging outside and graces himself as he springs more compliments onto himself. All right, do you. He comments that the lightning could be for Percy, but Percy springs the question onto Mary. Byron smiles, calling her an angel. She smiles as she stitches, questioning him. Byron calls for her to look at the storm with him. She reminds him how how it scares her. Mary asks for her husband to light the candles. He does so with pleasure. Byron comments about her being afraid of the dark as she wrote Frankenstein. They continue speaking on her writing being too shocking to be published she defends her work explaining that she wrote a moral lesson on 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 a man who dares to emulate god fucking love how poetic that is it's just mary shelley as a person though like she's a bad bitch like bro she's she's a teenager (laughs) who invented like an entire genre and she wrote frankenstein out of a bet like you're the coolest and then you know same thing Carries her husband's heart around with her after he dies. Loses Fucking her virginity on her baller. mom's gravestone. Like, baller. bad bitch forever. And she's bisexual. So, like, Let's she rules. go. <laughs> it's, it's so fantastic. And, and the fact about her in general that really fascinates me is the fact that, like, hey, we wouldn't have horror or Star Wars. <laughs> if it weren't for her like I mean, she, like come on she married the two that were practically cousins <laughs> Byron doesn't care about her purpose instead he loves the horror behind it all she pleads for him not to remind her of the story Byron reminds her of her writing anyway reciting a piece of the story back to her we transition into the story as Byron speaks Henry Frankenstein creating his monster with the severing of graved cadavers people being killed by the monster back with the threesome see I had to add the threesome because, like, they totally had a threesome after she said her story. Um, Byron complimenting her as he touches her hand, causing her to prick her finger. No one cares. Um, like She's like, oh, you picked my finger. And he just continues. Um, <laughs> Percy runs to her aid, commenting about her story ending so suddenly. She tells him that was not the end, claiming that she is ready to tell the continuation of Frankenstein's monster and it being the perfect night for her to do so. We transition back to the ending of Frankenstein, the mill burning to the ground, the people cheering around the fire. A woman named Minnie, laughing that uh, that this is the best fire she's ever seen, a scarfed woman weeping, calling it terrible. Minnie agrees, but claims that she enjoyed the monster burning, calling Frankenstein's work of the devil, telling the weeping 
the weeping woman to cross herself before the devil gets her. And when she said that, I was just like, crickety cross yourself before you riggedy wreck yourself. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I was like, perfect. Uh, They do so in unison as they move more towards the crowd. The Burgomaster continues moving the folk along. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, PJ. Is this supposed to be set in France? Um, I'm going to be totally honest. I don't know which okay. country it's supposed to be set in, but I do know uh, that moving forward, the uh, the individuals that Frankenstein is going to encounter are the individuals from the first movie, and that's something that a lot of people don't catch. That is true. Yeah, that that is very, very true. Um, I was just thinking about the Burgomaster because I was like, usually it's like a mayor of a French town, I thought, but I don't know. I might be making all this shit up, to be completely honest with you. <laughs> Another flame <laughs> rises out of the rubble. Minnie's stoked about it continuing to burn into ash, and she's like, yeah, burn! And uh, she's like, <laughs> she continues that the monster's innards are the last to be consumed. I'm like, this is morbid as fuck, and I love okay, it. Okay, <laughs> this is what I wanted to bring up to you. I was like, watching this for the first time, I was like, wow, they're really celebrating that they burned down this mill and they killed someone. And then looking at this perspective... Uh, with like the different lens, I was like, "Wow, they really just want to destroy anything that gives them fear, and they want to yeah. celebrate that." And it kind of like broke my heart watching that. And I even put here in my notes, I was like, "Even the dialogue, it's pretty brutal." And I was like, mm-hmm. "Damn, this movie is yeah. just starting off very strong, and it's not holding back." And I was like, "Okay, poor Frankenstein, or not Frankenstein, but Frankenstein's monster, as seen as a outcast, and so much so, and so feared as much that they want to not only destroy him." but also celebrate that destruction and be there with the fire and talk all of this, like, crude dialogue. And I was like, wow, okay. It has big, like, Westboro Baptist Church vibes to me. Yeah. Oh, sure. Like, it, it, if you were to cut them, like, side by side, like, listening to the villagers cheer and then listening to the protesters outside of, you know, gay funerals, it's like a one-to-one, just a little bit less fire and more terribly, you know, kinkoed signs. Yeah. Very true. <laughs> very, <kinko>. very true. <laughs> I mean, they they were. Yeah, fair, fair enough, yeah. <laughs> Hashtag fuck the, the Westboro Baptist Church. <laughs> uh, I used to have that shirt, and it was from a band, Motionless and White, and it was the fucking coolest shirt ever. And my grandma's like super Christian, and I could not wear it around her. But it was one day where I was like, you know what, fuck it, I'm going to wear it to school one day. Got sent home. It was great. (laughs) (laughs) She continues that it is the monster's innards that... Oh, I said that already. Sorry. Burgomaster tells them that the monster is dead as he tries to move everyone along. I love how he's just like sitting duck. He's chilling like, man, I'm going to wait till these motherfuckers leave. (laughs) Get the fuck out of here. Uh, He pats himself on the back, claiming that they are lucky he arrived to keep them safe. Minnie fires back, and I was like, hell yeah, Minnie, get it. Asking why he didn't save the folks that were drowned and murdered. I ask the same thing to God. He ignores the question, claiming that he doesn't want any rioting, telling them to move along. He wishes them all a good night. Minnie is still not taking his shit, spitting on his wishes and mocking him. Wow. Minnie, honestly, she is so funny. She's the unsung hero of this movie, in my opinion. Like, Like, I love her. (laughs) She's so funny. Like, she's really, really funny and very dramatic, and I love it. I love it. I really, really enjoyed her character very much. Um, who played her? Una O'Connor. O'Connor. Excuse me. Um, yeah, she's great. I loved her. They moved down the hill, Minnie calling out to a dead Henry Frankenstein. 
so they think, on the back of a carriage. He comments that he was supposed to be married today to Elizabeth. Um, the burgomaster co- commands them to cover him, suggesting that someone should break the news to her. He tells them to ride as fast as they can to Henry's father's house to bring his body home. Minnie, Minnie begins to sob, the burgomaster telling her to shut up. No chill up in the mid-30s. Nope, none whatsoever. Everybody, if a a woman dares to have any emotion, she's hysterical and must be slapped. (laughs) Ridiculous. Like, just zero shame. And, man, I... I should ask my grandma if she's seen this movie because she's born in 1935 and I was just like, I would love her experience. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. <laughs> Meanwhile, Hans is waiting on the hill, looking at the burned rubble, his wife pleading for him to come home, shaking him, asking why does he stay here? He moves closer, claiming that he wants to see the monster dead with his own eyes. His wife believes that he is dead, reminding him that this won't bring their daughter back. Hans claims that he will sleep better at night if he sees sees it for himself. She pleads for him to come back as he walks into the rubble. He falls in, fall into a flood of water. The monster emerges from a corner, drowning Hans in the water and walking up the stairs. Fucking savage. His <laughs> wife calls for him, move into the area where he fell. The monster reaches out, grabbing the woman's hand, pretending to be the husband unintentionally, then tosses her in. Her just that was fantastic. The rag doll body just falling inside the water. <laughs> this all looks great. This just looks great. And, and I think the rag doll itself makes it look, uh, honestly, in my opinion, better because it looks more brutal. That's what because I was going to add. Yeah, I was going to say the, the exact same thing. The way the body just hits, right? Like, it's mm-hmm. just, it, like, it looks so brutal. <laughs> oh, savage. Just savage. Uh, Minnie is waiting outside wailing wildly at the, at the monster standing right behind her. Cut to the town folk riding the carriage into Frankenstein's castle. They knock and ring the bell. Didn't know, like, that kind of surprised me when the bell rung, and I was like, I had to look it up. Like, when were bells invented for doorbells? <laughs> Quite early. It was like 1918 or something like that. And I was like, oh, fuck me. Um, the The... Elizabeth coming out to summerly answer the door with a crowd of people behind her. They bring Henry's body forward, Elizabeth somberly asking them to bring him inside. Meanwhile, Minnie is running into the castle area, whimpering and calling for Albert the butler. He irritatedly asks, what does she want? She shares the mo- that the monster is still alive. He doesn't believe her. And she just says, fuck it then. Then we'll, they'll see when they're all dead. Savage. <laughs> There's so many savage moments in this movie, and it's fantastic. <laughs> Definitely. They bring Henry inside, the members of the castle crying over the dead body. Elizabeth goes up, goes up to Henry, asking for him to speak to her, Minnie assuring her that he is dead. As Elizabeth is walking away, Henry hand, hand slides from, the, from off the top of him, Minnie screaming that he's alive. Elizabeth comes running over, Henry waking up. I love how smooth he woke up. He's just like, oh shit, my bad, I was asleep. Slept real good on this carriage ride to my house. <laughs> it very much feels like the 1935 version of like surprise, bitch. I bet you thought you'd seen the last of me because it's so smooth. It's so smooth. Like hand just falls down, she flips out. It's like Elizabeth. Oh, <laughs> amazing, <laughs> amazing. It was, <laughs> was kind of to me. It kind of reminded me of like a reverse Snow White situation. 
Is that the right, <laughs> is that the right story, Snow White? Yeah. Gets, okay. yeah. 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 So like it kind of reminds me of that um, in a way where it's it's actually to me really cool to see a man in distress in horror. And I, you, those are things that we don't really get to see often. I feel mm-hmm. like, True. Um, and especially someone like this, where Henry Frankenstein wasn't some, I don't know, f- old chap. I guess like who <laughs> fucking yeah. like is he's just, young. Yeah, he's young. He's he's timid. He's scared. He's nervous. He's anxious, and all of those emotions and. I guess anxieties are very much displayed on the surface level. And I think that is beautiful because you don't see men act like this in horror. And it's like a perfect example is cabin in the woods, right? Mm -hmm. Where you've had all of these arcs of these menly men trying to be men and it, and whatever the fuck that means, but you see it here where in 1935, we have someone who is really expressing their emotions and having their heart on their sleeve. And that is just beautiful to me. I love that. Um, I, I just wish we encouraged more just humans to do that in general and yeah. allowed the space for men to be able to do that. So many problems would be solved if we allowed men to express <laughs> their emotions. That's oh, yeah, that's true. true. That's so very true. true. I, I am very proud of when I cry. Just like, yep, this is happening. Let it out, Prince. Let's do it. Let's yep. let it flow. I'll let Let's everyone know. Ourself. I cried Please this do. morning. I'm proud. See? There you go, Freddy. I'm proud of you. I like to there take the Brennan Fraser in Bedazzled approach where he talks about his tears and he's like, I'm not ashamed of them. They're little badges of courage. Yeah, they are. They oh, are. I like that. Badges of courage. Absolutely. That's it. Transition to Elizabeth and Henry in their room by his side, telling him that he will feel better soon. But he's feeling almost himself again. That was quick. He just needed a nap, y'all. Suggesting <laughs> that they will go away and forget about this. He believes that the, they won't be able to be able to, claiming that he's cursed for what he's done. Still, Henry takes pride in his work, sharing his dream of being one of the first to create man. Speaking, which is that statement always was interesting to me the being the first to create man and i was just like being the first to impatiently create man like i mean come mm-hmm. on yeah that's know. a really good point like, <laughs> it's just just impatient that's all speaking faster from excitement on what uh, of what could have been elizabeth stops him claiming that they are blasphemous he thinks that he is supposed to know these things but she is firm on her stances she tells him about how she felt when he would speak about his dreams and aspirations she's hysterical about his about an apparition that is coming for him but he doesn't see anything i want to talk about this for a moment here mm-hmm. the apparition like we both don't see anything and with us not seeing what she's seeing, what do you think she's actually referring to? Very curious. I was hoping to get some insight on this because I was wondering what she was seeing. Sure. So the interpretation that I've always had with this is that this entire scene, like I think a lot of the subtext of the entire movie is immediately set up in this scene because the first thing in that discussion, when they're talking, you know, he's talking about how he wants to essentially play God, the way that she says, we're not supposed to know those things. Mm 
mm-hmm. is so telling to me that we are in a world where we are told to like blindly follow what we are being told and that we're not supposed to seek outside information because, you know, that's, that's blasphemous or whatever. And that is like the first inkling that I think we start to get with like Henry Frankenstein thinking differently than other people and living differently than other people. And Mm. as far as what she's seeing, we're, we're also during a time where it is so common to have wailing hysterical women because it's, it's less of a, Oh, she's seeing like a physical ghost. Like she's seeing the premonition of death and destruction. Like that's what she is seeing. But the way that it's presented is that it's supposed to look crazy and it's supposed to look so over the top so that it's easily dismissed because if it was like calm and collected and death is coming for us, please don't do this. I think that he would have listened, but because she's like throwing herself on the bed and like fawning and screaming and like wailing her face off, then it's like, man, I don't got to listen to you crazy bitch. Like, nope, (laughs) that's fine. And that's also part of it is (laughs) there's a lot, a lot of really great feminist messages that have just been like hidden throughout the work of both Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, where this is like, Hey, maybe you should have listened to the woman who was warning you, but sure. Don't do that. Um, so for me, it's always just been like, she's just, she's seeing the inevitable. She's seeing death. That's the premonition, but it's presented in a way that we can ignore her because she's not being calm or intelligent. And we know how much Henry Frankenstein appreciates intellect. Got it. Got it. Okay. That makes a lot of sense because, like, for me, I was trying to, like, try to make – I was trying to make sense in my head on, like, what I can interpret this as. And the only thing I honestly kept going to was just, like, James James Well, he also directed The Invisible Man. Maybe Mm -hmm. The Invisible Man's (laughs) here. Like, in my head, that's what I kept going to. And I was just like, ugh, that's totally not right. Like, honestly, (laughs) what we're seeing with Elizabeth is the equivalent of, like – Friday the 13th when it's like you're all doomed and everyone's like shut up you crazy old coot we're not listening (laughs) to you like that's what we're getting but it's like oh hush yourself Elizabeth you woman right yeah definitely she falls on the bed crying but banging on the door Minnie comes out thinking that it is Albert banging on the door outside a black suited man with a black hat named Dr. Pretorius is at the door now David Freddie you guys remember the name Dr. Pretorius correct no. Oh my god. Yeah, I think Wait, I need a this, reminder. Uh, is this the guy is from uh, we... Mama? Nope. Not Damn Mama. It. Okay. Nope. You're not close either. But <laughs> um, the, it is from Beyond. Oh. That was the name of the doctor who went in the Beyond, and his penile gland was the one that oh, was robbing. Oh, that's, right. that's right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> this is where they get it from. The, the uh, boing, um he tells he, we don't need it again uh, he tells <laughs> Minnie to let him to uh, let him in to see henry um she tells him that he's sick in bed he demands for for her to to tell him that he's uh, that he's there to share a secret important matter while closing the door behind him i love how he just is like I'm taking charge. My boo is up in here. She repeats his <laughs> name, running to the stairs, then asking for the name again. He tells her as they walk up the stairs, Minnie demanding him to stay stay there while she checks on them. Checks on them. They they allow her in. She tells him that Pretorius is there so to see to see him about grave matters. Henry allows him to come in. 
Dr. Petoris comes into the room apologizing about coming in so late. Henry briefly introduces his fiance to him, saying that he, uh, he used to be a doctor of philosophy at the university. Pretorius chimes in saying that he was booted out for quote-unquote knowing too much. Elizabeth claims that Henry is very ill, but he's persistent. Henry tells her to go, go, out, to her, go out of the room, and he asks for what Pretorius wants. He wants for him and Henry to work together, but Henry tells him that he is done. Pretorius gaslights him a bit, saying that it is his fault for all of the murders that are happening around town and that someone has to pay for the killing those people have gone through, reminding him that the monster is still at large at, in the countryside. Henry asks if he's being threatened, but Pretorius wants, to wants them to work together, but Henry still doesn't want to. He still tries to persist Henry, bringing up that he has made a creation of his own. He invites Henry to come see it. Henry is now excited to see his creation, and they leave for the night i love how that was it you're just like oh shit you created some shit oh come on bro <laughs> just started with that come on man i would have came with you a long time ago i would have kicked my fiance out immediately like <laughs> um now right off the bat here um bj if you if you don't mind explaining this scene a little bit more for us um with this particular relationship that they have pretorius mm -hmm. and frankenstein um i find it fascinating but I also, for someone who kind of has, who's coming in with honestly full ignorance, right? Like, mm -hmm. I want to know a little bit more about this scene. Is is there any contextualization on this method of where uh, they show their queer side? So it's also important to note that we're dealing with a movie existing in the time of the Hayes Code. So showing canonical queerness is against the law. And right. there's, you know, the ending of this movie was even changed in order to accommodate the Hayes Code, which is super annoying. Um, but James Whale uh, sort of specifically wrote this character to, like, be an old queen is the best way that people have ever described him. Okay. Who he's, hmm. he's just... It's really hard to kind of explain these characters if, like, you're not within the queer community. But these are the people who, like, they've been around the block. They were probably, like, very vibrant and flamboyant in, in their youth. Like, definitely, like, the party gays. And now they're just old and over it. Like, that's... I love it. <laughs> that's I pretty love much, it. That's pretty much what he is. Okay. And he's clearly in love with with Henry. Like, he's in yeah. love with him. And he's also in love with, like, this creation. And what we're having here is a proposition between one man to another man like hey buddy you want to make some life together and mm. like how else do you make life but having sex but okay. since they're two men and you can't make life in that way obviously if, uh, unless uh, one of the partners was you know assigned female at birth but uh, in this instance we have two cis men and they're gonna make some life together if you know what I mean. And it's gotta be with you, Henry. It has to be with you because he's in love with them. So that's pretty much what we're we're propositioning here. And I mean, even the creations um, that that uh, Pretorius has is like, you know, I have this king in a jar, but like he can't be with the queen. I gotta keep him separate. And it's like, <laughs> why why do you hate the straight so bad? Like I know that they're oppressive, but like let, just let the nice. Tiny people be together. It'll be fine. <laughs> Thank you for the explanation. Like I, I, I was trying to explore this scene a little bit more and understand it a little bit more, and that makes so much more sense now. And like, the the actor who plays him, um, Ernest Theziger, I might be mm -hmm. saying his last name wrong, but he was also 
openly gay. So, you know, he pretty much was like, I want to write this old queen character and who's going to play him? One of my old queen friends. (laughs) I love it. That's amazing. Oh, wow. That's so fucking cool. See? Oh, my God, BJ. Thank you. Look, if if movies in the 1930s could authentically do queer casting, there is no excuse for James Corden in the prom. Ryan Murphy. Thank you. Yep, you're right. Mm -hmm, That's true. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Thank you. Fade to them riding over to Pretoria's place. Inside his lap, he offers Henry a seat. Pretoria's pouring them a drink for their new partnership. He toasts to a, quote, new world with gods and monsters, end quote. What a fucking fantastic toast, by the way. I wrote that down. I was like, that's my favorite line. I was like, that's pretty Oh, my God. I I was trying to convince my wife to have me say this at our wedding. A new world of gods and monsters. Love that. A new world with gods and monsters. Like I would have been so great, but yeah, that wouldn't happen. (laughs) Henry does not. Pretoria is continuing around the room, going to door, uh, going to the door to grab his life's creation. He pulls out a chest, carefully placing it on the counter before opening the box. Pretoria pulls out four covered vials. He takes the sleeves off the first two, showcasing a miniature king and queen. He discusses his miniature human experiments, ending with the archbishop and the devil. The king comes out of his vial, Pretoria putting him back in the vial. As Pretorius continues showing off his miniature creations, he wants Henry's help in his achievement with the proper size. Henry doesn't believe this this to be science, yet black magic. Pretorius argues that he went straight to the material and grew his own creatures. He congratulates Henry on achieving feats that he missed with getting the size and proportions correct, and he wants to collaborate. Henry is still not interested, but Pretorius continues that Henry's cre- uh, creature can have a female counterpart. Using Bible scriptures to imply quote-unquote natural multiplication of Frankenstein's monster. Henry catches on to what Pretorius is referring to on him wanting to create a woman for his monster. So interesting. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Cut to Frankenstein's monster walking into walking in a forest, falling down to the ground to drink some water in the lake. While, while drinking water, he notices his reflection in the water. Ashamed, he hits the water. A woman on a hill is tending to sheep. He tries to get her attention. She screams in fright from the sight of him, falling into the water. The monster rescues her from the water. She screams for him not to touch her. Growling as he tries to keep her from screaming, a couple of hunters come running down the hill, shooting at the monster. The bullet connects and he runs off. Oh my fucking god. There's so much to unpack with that scene. So much. I want to hear it. I want to hear it all. Oh god. Okay, so first off, I mean, he's upset by his own reflection and as a queer Mm -hmm. person, I cannot tell you how many times I have looked at my own reflection when I was like figuring things out and coming to terms with things where I was like I hate myself. Like, why am I like this? And that's awful. Or the fact that um, I couldn't help but think about it (laughs) during this last rewatch because it just happened. But did you all see the thing with the boat that was harassing the people with a rainbow flag and then their boat caught fire? Oh, yeah, I did see that. I saw that on TikTok. Well deserved. So, like, all that happened. And then what did they have to do but swim to the boat of the gay people for right. rescue and then when they're even on the boat they're screaming and crying about how awful it is and it's like this they just saved your fucking life exactly like, yeah calm down and that's what's happening here is it's like you know he saves her life and it's like no get away from me like right. did you want to drown like i don't understand here i um, can leave you like- <laughs> he could have left you yeah, or he could have like you 
pushed you lower and then drowned you, but no, he saved you. And then what is his, you know, act of kindness being repaid with, but the, uh, like the equivalent of 1930s rednecks with guns, like great. Awesome. Love this visual. (laughs) (laughs) I like that you made that connection too, because it it shows that this movie came out in 1935 and that's still happening now. And that's, we still have so far to go. And yeah. yeah. And I totally get that with like the self reflection. It's like feeling like you're unwanted or not feeling loved and hating yourself because of it, blaming yourself for it. But at the same time, I'm happy that Frankenstein does find a friend later on. I'm not trying to jump too ahead because mm-hmm. that's the first time he actually gets accepted. And it's, it so happens to be someone who's blind, who can't see his imperfections, quote unquote, and just gets taken in. But we'll get there. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, for, for me, I, Obviously, when I watch films in general, like I, I look at it in, in my lens, right? So when I when I even picture this moment, like I picture this as, as black, you know, being mm-hmm. being a black person. Like, I mean, not too long ago, what maybe, oh, gosh, a little bit less than twenty years ago, you had uh, Birth of a Nation, right? Like mm-hmm. that, and with that being the contextual, I guess of black people and this is how white people who've never seen a black person before reacts and for me like that's how i pictured it was just like this is something she's never seen before and this is her immediate go-to of reaction and um just because it's different from her you know exactly Mm -hmm. and i think that's exactly that goes throughout the whole film a lot of people just assume frankenstein's monster is a monster just because he looks different Mm -hmm. right Transition to, yeah, yes. Transition to a group of the town folk going to the uh, Burgomaster's place, shouting that the monster is in the woods. He commands the officer to get the hounds, keep everyone except for the men in their homes, and wait for him. The Burgomaster is confident on killing the monster. The town folk following him. Frankenstein's monster is running through the woods on on tops of his uh, on top of a high ledge, hiding behind a boulder. The down people are running after him, the monster trying to protect himself, rolling a boulder on the, on a couple of them. Good for him. Unless he, right. got, a, he got a few licks in. Um, they, uh, they overpower him, the Burgomaster yelling that he wants the monster sh- secured. He shouts instructions for how to bind him. Minnie emerges from the crowd, bluntly asking if they caught him. She is fucking everywhere. He tells her the good news, Minnie instigating the situation. They bring the monster down, bound to the wooden pole, dropping dropping his body onto a carriage of hay. Back in the in the town, they bring the creature into the dungeon, the Burgomaster co- commanding for him to be, be in chains. They place him down, the other officers chaining and hammering him on the onto the chair. People, people watch from the bars above as the officers leave him chained, overhearing Minnie yelling, yelling for her and the others to get out of there. <laughs> they are walking out of the dungeon, the officers being smart towards him. Meanwhile, the monster breaks out of his chains. No problem. Which is like, all right, just going to go ahead and pull an arm up. Right. The inconvenience. Right. It's just like, okay, minor setback. We'll figure this out. We got through it. The officers rush back in, shooting at, at the loose creature. The monster breaks through the door. The officer screaming for help and calling out, uh, calling out that he's loose. The Burgomaster is calling for everyone to go home, trying to keep them all calm. It's funny, when I was watching this in college, 
quick side story. When I was watching this in college one time, my roommate at the time came into the room and he was like, yo, they had guns back then? I was like, bruh, it's 1935. There was a, like, literal wars happening. What the fuck are you talking about? I was like, our college system has failed us. Like, this isn't working. What are you paying for? Uh, they disperse as the monster stumps towards them. Oh, love you, man. <laughs> Many trying to convince a man with a gun to shoot him. Frankenstein's monster just wrecks his ass completely. And Minnie continues running towards the crowd. A mother with her kids calls for her her daughter Frida. She runs up to a group of kids in search for in search for her, and they find her on the ground. I'd like to picture how would Frankenstein attack people today, and I like to think that it's a lot more vicious. But same, I when I I was going back and like thinking about like other Frankenstein movies that have come out, and and uh, I guess other Frankenstein type of. Uh, content that's come out or whatever and Penny Dreadful does it great where I mean we see a literally a man get split in half by Frankenstein's monster and then I also thought of uh, Larry Fassenden's uh, Depraved Mm -hmm. and I was like that movie was brutal as all fuck and like totally a really sensitive Frankenstein story in my opinion but I like to think about like how brutal can we make Frankenstein today? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Frankenstein's monster, like depending on your rating system, if you're doing like a PG-13 Frankenstein, then he's going to attack people like he's the Undertaker, like the wrestler, the Undertaker. Um, <laughs> but it. if it's Tombstone. if it's like rated R and we're getting gory with it, then he's basically just going to be Pyramid Head from Silent Hill and just like rip people's skin off and throw it against oh, the wall. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> PJ, please make this. <laughs> Right, that'd be amazing. Please make definitely see him just like crush people and just pick people up and throw them and like no, yeah, super powerful. Because a a big part of you know Frankenstein's monster is that he doesn't know his own strength. Like he doesn't understand that. That's why little Maria drowns in the first one because he's like, ah, you're like a flower because you're also pretty. Let me just throw you in this lake. Oh shit, now you're dead. Like oh fuck, you don't float. (laughs) Right, he doesn't understand these things. So I could very well see him kind of like. I don't want to say like silly Hulk strong, but like definitely one of those like goes to grab and accidentally shatters your bones. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. Everything Jason, I touch, I destroy. Jason Blum, <laughs> if you are listening to this episode right now, DJ, yes, yes. <laughs> Back with Minnie and a different crowd, hearing a woman screaming, they run inside the house to check on them. Mr. Newman is laid out on a chair. Minnie rushes up the stairs to check on his wife. She knocks on the door, opening it up to, to the moaning woman. Transition to a family, a woman calling her daughter back. Um, she tells her husband that they need to get away because it isn't safe and she's scared about the monster. Her husband claims that there isn't any danger because he's in jail. His mom asks for salt and pepper for their meal. He gets up to get it. The monster comes out of the woods, growling at the people for the meat. They scurry away in fright. The husband attacks him with a burning log. The monster uh, burns his hand, rushing away from the family. Um, the monster, <laughs> you know, what's so funny. He's just straight up yeeted that old lady. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking about that right now. It's like he threw the fuck out of her. Just like <laughs> you move out of my way. <laughs> he doesn't know his strength. That's he doesn't true. know that he's eating her. Yeah, that is very true. That is very true. The monster now takes a message from our sponsors. 
The monster finds his house with the soft violin music playing out of it. He smiles as the man inside the house continues to play, moving closer to the sound, peeking in the window, smiling and groaning at what he's hearing. The man the man stops playing, coming outside, calling out to whoever is out there as the monster hides. He goes inside the house, sitting down to continue playing his music. The monster comes back to peek inside the window for a moment. He moves to the door, opening it with a growl. The man asks who it is, but welcomes him in regardless of who he is. The man shares that he's blind the monster softly and somberly moaning. The man urges that he's safe there and that no one will hurt him, placing a hand on his chest. Recognizing that he's been hurt, he inches him inside to, to his bed, offering him to sit down. The man asks the question again who he is, the monster moaning, moaning softly. He doesn't understand and then asks if he can speak, but he empathizes with him. He tells the creature to place his hand on his shoulder if he understands what he is saying. He does so, and they reach a form of communication. The man tells the monster stay there while he goes to get him some food. The monster is slightly frightened by his movements, but he places the bowl in the pot, scooping some soup. He comes up to the monster, sharing that they will, they will be friends. He continues speaking on how, how lonely it has been there commenting that he will look after the creature and will be comforted in return. The monster hands the bowl back to him once he is done scarfing down the meal. The man tells him to sleep, grabbing his hand uh, to pray as he shudders and cries once he's done. The monster also cries, patting his new friend's back to console him. Wow. I love this scene so much. I really enjoyed it too. This scene is is just... just it's so pure because it's, I mean, in this one, I think that the the queer subtext is the most obvious because it's two people who have been outcast by society and all they have is each other. And I mean, this not even in like a queer romantic relationship, but this is a chosen family moment. This is, you know, the monster has been disavowed by his father and society. And as has the, you know, the blind hermit and they're just going to be together. And, it's cool that no one else can really understand them, but they will have each other. And I think that that's so beautiful and it just like hurts my heart because, you know, obviously Mm -hmm. we know later that he's going to meet the bride, but it's like, he was perfectly happy with this man. They were living their best lives. Perfectly happy, extremely content. And like, even we, as we get down a little bit later, we even see that like he tries to protect him, and and it's mm-hmm. and he learns from him as well, and it's just like it, it's such a beautiful experience because you have that experience, and I feel like this is very much telling for like relationships in general, not just like a relationship that is uh, sexual or whatever, um, but with you being in a relationship with the, whether it be a friendship. Um, you learn something from that person and you hopefully learn something to better yourself and to understand others as well. And I feel like all of this was just completely here where it kind of remind, reminded me of the movie um, Hear No Evil, See No Evil um, and how that relationship between a blind man and a deaf man um, perfectly interacted with each other which I also think is is very much a queer undertone for sure. But um, it is so interesting to see that, especially from this man who I later find out his name is actually Hermit, um, mm-hmm. that he hmm. is just so pleasant about his interaction with the monster. It's, just, right. it's miraculous. 
This is obviously my favorite scene in the entire movie because it's so heartwarming and very genuine, very authentic of like feeling accepted, being whoever you are. And they have this common ground of being quote unquote outcasts of society and understanding that they're there for each other and to support each other and later on protect each other. And I hate slash love that movies do this where they give you that sense of hope and this could be that happily ever after and it gets taken away rather too quickly, at least for me. Because I saw all of the trauma that was happening beforehand, and I was like, finally, Frankenstein's monster actually gets something out of something. But I think the scene lasts like five to seven minutes out of this one hour and 15 run time. And I was like, damn it. So close. So close. God (laughs) damn it. Takes it from your clutches. That happens a lot. And it's like a major trope in movies, just like, here's the sense of hope, and watch it get taken away. And I was like, every time it gets me. But yeah, this scene is fantastic. Welcome to horror. Fate to them eating, uh, Hermit teaching the monster how to speak, the monster repeating after Hermit as they eat. Part of, part of the lesson, Hermit pulls out a cigarette, lighting the, the match in his hand, slightly freaking out Frankenstein's monster. He laughs, telling the monster that it is good, handing him the cigarette to try. He takes it, enjoying each quick puff that he takes from the tobacco. Repeat, or... You know, might be a little bit of Mary Jane in there. Who knows? Repeat the words <laughs> good after each puff. And he's like, good, good. <laughs> like, you're right. Frankenstein's poster is good. <laughs> it makes me think of that movie Fido where, you know, you have oh, the yeah. pet zombies. Yeah, I was going to say, is it the zombie pet movie? Yeah, because yeah. then the zombie at one point is smoking and the kid's like, whoa, were you a smoker boy? And the zombie's <laughs> like, this is fucking great. Obviously, he doesn't say it, but that's what right. his body language is saying. Yeah, he's like, yes, I was. <laughs> <laughs> Hermit shares that he was alone before he came along. The monster repeating, alone, bad, friend, good. Shaking Hermit's hand while repeating, friend, good. He laughs, taking his friend's uh, he laughs, taking his friend over to the stick of wood, asking him, what, what is this? Not knowing, Hermit excitedly lets him know that it is wood for the fire. With a smile, the monster repeats, wood. Hermit brings him over to the fire, but the monster freaks out and walks away. He tries to tell the monster that the fire is actually good, but he doesn't think so. Hermit explains that there are both good and bad things in the world. The monster understands, grabbing the violin for Hermit to play. Hermit sits down to play while the monster smokes in, and dances in his chair fuck yeah and i was like this whole movie is just like this is my whole interaction with my daughter like there's both good <laughs> shit and bad shit in the world you know we're gonna focus on the good but the bad shit's gonna happen and it's gonna be unfortunate but at the same time we're gonna learn from that bad shit and we're gonna go i ahead do like that they that. uh i like to they bring the aspect of the fire too, being like a symbol of trauma and literally being burned by society and him being Absolutely. afraid of that and I was like, wow, this is actually a very powerful, symbolic moment that they're sharing. And then they have that discussion of like, yes, there are evils in the world, but there's also good in the world. And kind of learning mm-hmm. that perspective of being available in that, foresight, in that foresight. And it's so beautiful that you brought that up, Freddie, because in, in the previous film, it, it, he's literally burned by society. Yeah. And like that, you know, that I love how you just brought that around full circle. And I know it was unintentional, but still, like, that absolutely makes total sense. And two yeah, the hunters- later comes back Sorry, literally in about like two minutes of this movie. Fair enough. Uh, two of the hunters come inside, knocking on the do- I now want to call them old rednecks. Two- That's <laughs> what they the- are. They're old school rednecks that are just like, <laughs> I oh, it. I see two men together in a cabin. <laughs> honestly, Better shoot them. Honestly, Amazing. accurate. I'm going to say right? it. 
Like, it's so, it's so accurate. They come inside, knock on the door, asking for directions out of the woods. The monster recognizes them, and they recognize him. He gets up from his stool, knocking the man down who has the gun. Hermit gets up in front of the monster, asking for an explanation for the two men. They argue with that the monster is responsible for murdering half of the countryside. Because they bitched, man. They fucked him up. It's no right that they could do this to this poor creature. He's so nice. He just, like, like BJ said. <laughs> He just doesn't understand his strength. That's it. Just gotta, just gotta learn to pick up a teacup. We'll take it slow. <laughs> we'll take it slow. They continue explaining that the monster created uh, created out of dead bodies. The monster lunges at them. They move across the house to escape his clutches, setting the house on fire. The hunters help Hermit out of the house as he still calls out to his friend inside the burning abode. The monster making it out, calling for his now lost friend. The monster walks across the forest, scaring children away, scared children running away from his path. He growls as he disrespects his surroundings in the graveyard. Yeah. I had to add a, a day to remember joke in there. Just couldn't. <laughs> uh, pushing a statue out of the way so he can so he can go inside the grave. Shout out to all our pop punk fans out there. <laughs> the town <laughs> chases him into the graveyard, running towards him. The monster is out of breath, running uh, running down the stairs, opening a casket of a woman, smiling while calling her friend. Dr. Pretorius and a couple of his lackeys open the gate from the other side. The monster moves into the shadows to watch them get to work to get the casket open. His lackeys, Carl and Ludwig, read the inscription of Madeline Ernstein, who died in 1899. Pretorius doesn't care about that. He asks about her age. Carl uh, trembles as as he says she's as he says her teenage being nineteen. Pretorius is happy with that age. They feel guilty about his choice. Pretorius uh, threatening them to continue. Carl and Ludwig crack the coffin open, them opening it, revealing the skeletal remains. I like this. I like this a lot. I like mm-hmm. the fact that it is just morbid and very much reminds me of like probably what inspired most of Tim Burton's, I guess, life. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like this is what he would just do as a kid was just watch this. But it, it very much reminds me of like Frank and Weenie, right? With uh, uh, when we see, and I'm I'm speaking on the most current Frank and Weenie. I think of like 2012 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but as we see, like with Igor, and when they actually are going to the pet cemetery and things like that, and they kind of have this interaction of like just waiting and expecting what to happen. Um, and I like this. I like this scene being, <laughs> it's going to be weird to say, uh, morbidly curious. And I, I really enjoy that for this scene. I also love that there is an establishment of a moral compass for yes. like who is worthy or deserving of, you know, having their grave robbed. <laughs> like, if they would have been like, she's 15, I feel like you'd have been like, no, right. I can't do that. Well, maybe not. It's the 30s. But <laughs> <laughs> who knows? I just, I, I always found that really interesting because I think in a lot of these, you know, mad scientist stories of men playing God, they are presented as these people who will do anything at any cost to fulfill their passion. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily true. Like they're still people and they do still have a moral compass. And that's what makes the actions they take so much scarier because we, we know that there's an understanding of good and evil and that there is a range of acceptability and they just happen to be on a different range than everyone else. Right. 
Yeah, makes total sense. They finish up. Pretorius paying them f- for their assistance, but he's sticking around. He opens his supper of an alcohol. The two men uh, are outside. And I like how he's just like, I like it here. I'll stay. Um, the two <laughs> men are outside. Carl wondering if they should give this grave robbing lifestyle away and allow themselves to go to the gallows. And I was just like, fuck. We over here talking about suicide? Damn. Um, and, you know, I just, I just love how morbid this movie is. Like, mm-hmm. And it's just morbidly poetic because, one, everyone kind of just talked different in the 30s, right? So, yeah, that was the thing. Um, you either had this very high echelon type of vocabulary or you either just kind of talk like you were from the mud or whatever. Um, <laughs> which my grandmother definitely talked like she was from the mud. She was from the south. So it was – it was. I learned some fun words. Uh, meanwhile, Pretorius is uh, – is his, Excuse me. Meanwhile, Pretorius is enjoying his, himself next to the bones of Madeline, laughing and mocking her remains. The monster comes out of the shadows for a better look at the doctor, then moves closer towards him. Pretorius greets him, the monster asking for a smoke while calling him a friend. He offers the monster a cigar. Going to grab one, the monster takes a bite of the chicken, bone and all. Pretorius laughs while pouring him a drink. The monster chugs it down, then asks if he makes a man if he uh, if he makes a man like him. Pretorius tells him no. Yet a woman, a friend for him. The monster is accepting of this idea. The doctor shares a piece of his plan of 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 the use of having a female monster, then asking who Henry Frankenstein and himself are. The monster knows, explaining in his way that he was made from the dead and he loves it. And I fucking love how he says it. Love dead, hate living. Fantastic. Me too, my friend. <laughs> Just <Pretorius>. same. <laughs> like, me too. Pretorius co- uh, compliments him, suggesting that they they need to have a long talk. The monster repeats the idea out loud of them making a woman already calling her his wife. Cut to Minnie telling Henry uh, that Pretorius is there. Henry tells her to send him away and that he doesn't want to see him. She, excited, she excitedly... Uh, closes the door to tell him the news, but Pretorius just walks around the other side, <laughs> coming from the other side of the wall, greeting Henry. He congratulates him and Elizabeth on their marriage. She goes up to him, sharing that she isn't afraid of his business with Henry, but uh, his visit is unwelcome since Henry has been quite ill. She goes up to her husband, mentioning that the carriages um, have just arrived and she will tend to the baggage. Looking over the over at the doctor, saying with conviction, uh, quote, then we're leaving, end quote. Pretorius stays behind to tell a nervous Henry that he has created the perfect human brain that is already living yet dormant. Um, real quick before I continue, that portion of when Elizabeth kind of goes up to Pretorius um, and she's like, kind of looks at him and stares like with just complete anguish. It's just like, then we're leaving. Like it kind of reminds me of like the jealous girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Because she's absolutely a jealous girlfriend in this moment, or a jealous wife. And I love the fact that she's like, I'm not afraid of your business. You're just not welcome. And I'm like, bitch, you are so threatened right now. Because, <laughs> like, you know that ultimately, like, Henry's going to do what Henry's going to do. And it's going to be right. make creatures with this man. <laughs> Damn, I love that call out. Because I would have never caught that. That's amazing like it, to hear. Because, yeah, that's, what, that's what's happening here. And the other thing, too, is, like, they've just gotten married. And what is he doing? He's interrupting their wedding night. Are they consummating that marriage? No. Right. He, he's about to oh go make God. a bride. I love that. So, yeah, this, there's it, one of the closest comparisons I can make. And admittedly, it is, like, a very, a lot of people hail it as, like, 
a very important gay movie, but it is very homophobic, but it's Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, where mm-hmm. Jesse is, like, about to, you know, go down on his girlfriend, and then it's like, no, I can't. Let me run into the bedroom of my friend. Like, right. that's <laughs> what we're seeing right. here. It's like, I'm married. I should consummate this. Wait, I can get out of this and make a person with this man? Peace. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Claiming that everything is ready for the both of them to collaborate. He, Henry tells him that he won't do it and that he changed his mind. Pretorius is upset, but claims that he expected this, mentioning that they that uh, he thought they would need another assistant. Hoping that he can persuade him, he waves him over. Henry shouts for him to not bring him out, Pretoria is calling him harmless except when he's crossed. The monster comes into the room calling out to Frankenstein, Pretoria is claiming that he made some improvements on him. The monster tells him to sit down, Henry asking what he wants. He tells Pretorius that he doesn't want any part of it and that he won't discuss it while the monster is there. Pretorius commands him to leave. The monster does as he's told, but turns around to tell Henry that he must do it. Henry yells, yells telling him no, yet again, that nothing can make him. Pretorius closes the door, but says the words, quote-unquote, now, to him. The monster walks over to the window where Elizabeth is getting ready to leave. She gives her orders to the butler and Minnie, but Minnie doesn't leave right away. She shares that she doesn't um, she doesn't like to leave Elizabeth alone. Elizabeth rebuttals that she will be all right. Minnie gives her hopes and leaves out of the room, closing the door. The, the monster unlatches the window. Elizabeth's thinking that it's Henry, and it's just like, why would Henry come that way? Like, why would he? I mean, I guess like maybe they, maybe they she's done that before. I guess, but like it's just I was just thinking about like why would he just? All right, he comes outside. He comes inside, walking towards her, staring at um staring at herself in the vanity. She screams for Henry to help as the monster takes her out of the room outside. By the way, Elizabeth has a fantastic blood curdling scream. Oh, it's so good! It is so good, so good, and I did not expect it to be that drawn and that just like like she's practiced <laughs> like, <laughs> like that is a great scream and i i've always found screaming and horror so corny at times and for this film i was just like fuck no yeah like she's legit like a scream queen like that was it sounds like a perfect. sound effect like like how you right. have like wilhelm screams and whatnot like she right. sounds like the perfect screaming woman Yes, it, it's it's just it's so flawless to me. Henry runs out of the room, Minnie screaming for Elizabeth. She tells Henry that the monster took Elizabeth away, knowing that this is all because of Pretorius. He te- he calls for a search party. They are about to spring into action, but Pretorius shatters something on the ground to get their attention. I love that. He's just like, <laughs> and then he speaks. He speaks for them to not speak off of this evening if he values his wife's life. I'm just like, bro, you just took this man's wife away held her ass for ransom right now just so you could be with my boy henry frankenstein let's fucking go i love it it is such a great blackmail moment and it makes me think like in all honesty one of my favorite movies of all time is clue it is like i'm obsessed with it i think it is so brilliant but the fact that mr green are really really good friends (laughs) (laughs) but the fact that mr green's like thing that is worthy of blackmail is that he's gay compared to like 
women right. who are murdering their husbands and madams who were like you know torturing politicians so and people good. who are sleeping with their patients like all of them are doing these absolutely deplorable actions I was like mr green what'd you do i'm gay <laughs> it's like okay 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 bride of frankenstein i see you there we go um, assuring him that she will be safely returned. Cut to the monster, bringing Elizabeth into a cave, dropping her on a stack of hay. Henry comes into Pretorius's lab, commenting that um, he can't find a trace of Elizabeth, admitting that he's beaten. He agrees that he will help him if she can if she can be brought back. Um, I'm curious, like when he says he can't find Elizabeth anywhere, I feel like he's just like, I'm going to test it out. I'm going to do this search party anyway. And he's just like, all right, I can't find her. Like, where she at though like <laughs> yeah this is to me like because i didn't want to say it earlier and i guess spoil this part of it sure because henry shows like i don't want to he's being a bratty bottom like this is what's happening here <laughs> like i don't want to you can't make me i'll never do it shut up and get in the lab like we know what you actually want <laughs> right and that's what i think we're seeing here because it's finally you know him quote unquote giving in he didn't try that hard he's right. doing what he wanted to do all along and now he has the excuse to cover it up like oh well i'm only here because i thought you were gonna kill my wife no you did not do not lie <laughs> Do not lie. You wanted to be in that lab. You wanted to make life with this man. Let's do it. Pretorius, um, Henry, Carl, and Ludwig head into the head into the ruined building. Upstairs inside the lab, they are all at work to bring back the dead. Pretorius makes a crude, morbid joke about their wits and them being killed for it, considering considering themselves wizards. I fucking love that. Henry, and he's like completely just like he thinks it's so funny. <laughs> He's like, he's, like, he's like, hey, Henry, Henry, <laughs> back in the old days, we would be, like, burned for this. We would be considered wizards. <laughs> Henry calls him over, thinking that the heart is beating. He comes over to Henry, and they are working on the heart, heart to beat regularly. The beat increases, then stops. Henry mentions that he needs a different heart, a young one. Pretorius calls over, calls over Carl, Henry instructing him that they need a female victim of sudden death's heart. Carl reminds them of, of payment. They agree of, on the payment, and Carl scurries out, out of the lab. Carl waits for a woman in the shadows, taking her by, the, by placing a cloth over her head. And goddamn. <laughs> then we cut to Henry as the heart beating, amazed by the rhythm and its beats. Well, shit. Ah, uh, <laughs> wow. You know, it was very vampiric how Carl took this woman. <laughs> my, 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 Carl. My, my, my. Carl excitedly comments that it was very fresh. <laughs> Victoria's <laughs> angered by his comment. Henry's suspicious asks, where did he get it from? He lies that he gave uh, he gave the police 50 crowns for it. Looking over Pretorius, him mouthing that it, um, it was a police case and Carl repeating it. Pretorius steps in asking if he needs any help and for them to not worry about it for now. Um, did someone have something? I heard a, a gasp. My guess was just that I think it's really funny that, like, it would be a convincing argument to be like, where'd you get that heart? Oh, you know, the cops just have them, and I just paid for it. And they're like, ah, yes, of course. The police hearts. I oh, got it. I see, I see. It makes so much sense. I did that last week. Henry oh, the 30s. That- <laughs> oh, the 30s. <laughs> I 
should ask my grandma this too. Like, no, that's not a thing. That's not a thing. Buy hearts in the 30s, grandma? There's just like a corner in all of the evidence room that's just like human organs we found. <laughs> just scurried on around the sections. Um, Henry calls, Henry tells them that he works better alone. The monster comes into the room, shaking Henry awake, telling him to work. Henry asks for Elizabeth, but he tells Henry that she waits. He, com- he complains that he's exhausted. The monster continues to command him to work and sleep afterwards. Henry tells Pretorius to get him out. He agrees, then, pers- then persuades him to follow his- follow with a glass of alcohol. Pretorius pours in to add a chemical to the drink, the monster chugging it down fa- and falling to-, falling to the bed fast asleep. Henry comments that his wife is dead. Pretorius sharing that she is in fact alive and well, claiming that he has proof and that he will speak to- that she will speak to Henry from where she is through a machine. She isn't far from where they are. The phone buzzes, Pretorius telling him to speak and she will answer. Look at that. Pretorius is still teaching him shit. And it's just like, <laughs> yo. Henry speaks, Elizabeth claiming that she is safe but wonders how long. She is about to give her position, Carl shutting her, her mouth before she completes her sentence. Pretorius shares that that is all for now and that as soon as their work is done, she will return to him. Pretorius goes back to the heart, sharing that it is beating more regular. Henry mentioning that um, it has been beating uh, like this for nine hours. He asks Henry about the brain, him claiming that it is perfect and already in position. Them both thinking that they are almost ready, they move to the table to prepare to put the the heart inside the body. While working on the heart, Carl comes into the room to let them know about the storm. They listen out to it and are excited with the amount of lightning that is filling up the sky above. Pretorius exposes the bandaged head, marveling at the work of an artificial developed human brain. The thunderclaps, Pretorius looking out of the window in anticipation for the storm, moving closer towards them. Henry asks if the kites uh, if the kites are ready. Henry yells for Ludwig to get the kites ready. Pretorius and Henry prep up the body for electrocution. Meanwhile, Carl assists Ludwig with the kites. They move in unison to bring the diffuser down on top of the body. Henry shouts for them to stop and runs upstairs. They release the kites. He runs back downstairs, turning on the machine. It's sparking all around them. Pretorius flicks his switch as as they masterfully watch their work come to life. The diffuser comes up to, uh, comes up with the bed, exposing themselves to, to the storm overhead. Ludwig and Carl attaching the kites to it. The monster comes, uh, comes on the roof, growling as Carl yells for him to get away. He screams as he tries to use the torch on him, but the monster overpowers him, throwing him off the ledge. The kite is struck by lightning. Henry brings the body back down. They move the diffuser out of the way, removing the, the band... The, Removing the bands from the body. Her hand moves and she gives off a low moan. They remove the bandage from her mummified eyes and they are open. Henry exclaims that she is alive with excitement. They lift the table in 90 degrees and she passes back out. Can we talk about how amazing Elsa Lancaster's body acting is and the way she moves her head? Oh, like you can't recreate that. It, It looks like choreography like it looks like dance it's a beautiful like the and and even like how robotic it may seem in certain moments as well and and honestly the best way i could put it in lack of better words electrifying like Mm -hmm. it's just absolutely electric in her performance and she doesn't even have words she screams and it's literally speaking to us through her body and her shrills and her shrieks and it's flawless absolutely flawless 
A few moments later, she is completely unwrapped and dressed, sporting those super rad scars. They look so fucking good. They mm-hmm. look so good. Yeah. Um, an awesome black and gray hairdo. She so twitches her head around. Pretorius marveled at the work, calling out to, quote unquote, the Bride of Frankenstein. Cue our Leonardo DiCaprio point meme now. She moves towards <laughs> Henry, him, him helping her catch her balance. The monster comes down the stairs in awe at the woman. He calls her friend, letting out a slight shriek towards him. The monster touches her and she bellows a scream. Henry has her move to, move to sit down. The monster sitting next to her, he places her hand on his, smiling and chuckling as she touches it. As he touches it, excuse me. She lets out another scream, the monster tearing up that she hates him like everyone else. Meanwhile, Elizabeth escapes, the monster trying to get trying to get them. The monster's hand is over the lever, Pretorius shouting for him to stop or they will all die. Uh, Elizabeth shakes the door, begging for Henry to unlock it. He shouts for her to get back, but she won't. He unlocks the door, telling her that she can- that he can't leave them, but the monster yells for him to leave with Elizabeth. They do as, as he says. Looking back at Pretorius, he tells him to stay because they belong dead. He pulls the lever, the bride, hiss- the bride hissing as he does so. I love that. The- <laughs> It's fantastic. Uh, the <laughs> building explodes as Henry and, and Elizabeth run away from the crumbling building. They make it to a safe place. Henry embracing her as they watch the building. Then credits. Mm-hmm. Fucking miraculous. Mm-hmm. Wow. We actually finished literally when the movie finished. Yeah, That's I was great. just I was yeah, watching I was about that. To say crazy. that. Wow. <laughs> I'm good. Um, <laughs> fucking this movie is just absolutely just incredible to me but let's continue this conversation a little bit further with some movie facts movie facts movie facts thank you <laughs> i wonder if that is like on, You're welcome. on top of each other but like I'm, we'll figure it out marilyn harris who played Mar- uh, maria the girl the girl the monster accidentally kills in the original Frankenstein appears uncredited as another young girl. She is the leader of the group of young schoolgirls who encounter the monster as she as he runs away from the blind man's burning house. Director James Well deliberately gave her a one word line, "Look," so she would be paid more by the studio as an actor with a speaking role instead of as an extra. Damn, it's him. all about knowing the right people. Because James Whale's a good dude. He's like, you know what? I killed you last time. Here is a date rate. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Not long before the f- filming began, Col- Cl- oh my gosh, Colin Clive broke a leg in a horse riding accident. Coincidentally, uh, most of Henry Frankenstein's scenes were shot with him sitting. <laughs> Damn. Wow. That makes so much sense. That makes so much sense. I was, I was, I was actually very curious as to like, why is he sitting down working on this beating heart? But <laughs> I now I know, now I know. The musical soundtrack for the film proved so popular it was it was used again in the Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers uh, serials starring Buster Crab. Well, shit. Good soundtrack. Uh, I mean, it is good. It yeah. is real good. Like it was very dreamlike, and it like it's just it fucking worked. That's yeah, very euphoric. So yeah. Uh, 2007, the movie lines, quote unquote, we belong dead was voted as number 63 of the of the 100 greatest movie lines by Premiere magazine. Wow. I think it's a great line, but that entire exchange 
is my only real beef with Bride of Frankenstein as a movie because maybe it's because I identify with the Bride of Frankenstein that if some strange man was like, you're my friend now, touch me, I would also scream in his face. (laughs) Right. Um, But it's also very alarming to me, especially with, you know, how horror fans kind of romanticize the relationship between the bride and the monster. Yeah. Um, It like is very upsetting to me because it's like she rejected a man and his response is, well, I guess everyone has to die. And that would be so much funnier to me or so much more like sympathetic if that's not how men in real life actually respond. Like every other day, there's some new news story that's like girl said no to boy at prom. He stabbed her a hundred times. And it's like, that's awful and like that's not i don't have sympathy for you at that point go to therapy and like granted the monster can't go to therapy i understand that (laughs) however comma she did not deserve to die because she did not like him that's unfair that makes so much sense that makes a lot of sense and that's something if you if you want to stick around bj that's something uh i would love to discuss more in the post of course thank you uh we'll do a couple more here and we'll go ahead and wrap on up censors cause pretorious derogatory line about fairy tales to change to bible stories but once they saw the sneering contempt um which Ernest uh the the seeger loaded into his uh, delivery on those two on these two words they wished that they actually kept the original script instead Old queen, baby. Old queen. Get wrecked. Got a shit on Jesus. That's right. Get wrecked. (laughs) (laughs) Although the Bride of Frankenstein is one of the most iconic universal monsters, she only had three minutes of screen time in the entire film. What a shame. Mm -hmm. A fucking goddamn shame. I will have to say so myself. But. Agreed. That was the Bride of Frankenstein, and this is going to conclude our month for um, Pride of Horror. What a fantastic month, y'all. Like, this month has been so much fun. All our guests have been absolutely amazing. And, BJ, thank you so much for closing us out. This has been an absolute blast having you here. So Thank you so much for having me. Of course, of course. And you're invited back anytime you want to. Like, if we're talking about a film on Twitter or whatever, you're just like, yo, I need to be on that, you are in. (laughs) Like, like without, like, a fucking shot in the dark, you are in for sure. (laughs) That might be dangerous. I might be like, hey, you want to watch this weird thing that's going to, like, mess with your brain? (laughs) Fuck yeah. Like, uh, yeah. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Of course I do. (laughs) Down, maybe? Question mark. (laughs) (laughs) I want to watch all the things that are weird and implant in my brain forever <laughs> beautiful i'm plotting now <laughs> yes i love it i love it but next month everybody we are going to be kicking things off because next month is july and for on top of it being july a lot of us are vaccinated right now a lot of us really want to get back out in the world so we're going to be probably taking a lot of fucking vacations therefore i'm going to scare you on those vacations because we're talking about vacation horror movies all month long and this is going to be dubbed death trip we're going to start that off with the visit this Ooh. was nightlife oh before we actually even end it for good this time bj where yes. can people find you on the internet if you would like to f- have them find you sure you can find me on twitter and instagram it's my handle's just my name at bj colangelo and i also run a podcast called this ends at prom it's with really my wife harmony where we analyze the oft dismissed genre of teen girl films and talk about its cultural relevancy and staying power and you know dissect what kind of messaging we put out into the world <laughs> 
That sounds like an awesome show. It's I need to such check a that great out. Show. It's also show. fun because uh, my wife is transgender, so a lot of these teen girl movies that I have such affinity for from growing up, she missed all of them. So oh. I now get this fresh lens of somebody who has zero nostalgia for any of these films, That's and so it leads fun. to some really interesting discussions. Nice. Wow. I didn't know that uh, most of those were her first watch. A lot of them were. And oh, like some of fuck. the best episodes are the ones that she's never seen. Like 10 Things I Hate About You is a classic. Mm, Bring It On yeah. was a big one. Like fuck movies yeah. where you're like, I know what this movie's about. And then you actually watch it and you're like, I did not know what this movie is Ooh, about. I'll be definitely checking that out. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, wow. It's, it's a really good show. So yes, please, everybody check that out. But this was Nightlight, a horror movie podcast. I was one of your hosts, Prince, also known as Head Knight. And alongside me, we had David. Stay spoopy, everyone. Also known as Nightly. On the other end there, we had Freddy. Always staying spoopy. Always and forever. And thank you once again, BJ. You were a fantastic guest, and you were a great way to go ahead and conclude our month. Our efforts to get the show out is not enough. We need your help to spread us out to more ghoulish nights. By rating those five stars is very helpful, but we would love for you to recommend this podcast to someone who would actually enjoy it. You can further support the show over on Patreon.com forward slash Goodnight Life. That's like what they what? Okay. By pledging on Patreon, you have access to the show ad-free and as early as Monday with the post-show. If you don't have any bucks to toss, don't worry. An episode is released every Friday on most podcast services around the world. And remember, everybody, don't forget your nightlight.